It's hard to believe that Oliver Sacks died three years ago in 2015. His presence is still felt, his broadcasts and those books. And now there are two more to keep us beguiled by his words and his warmth. There's The River of Consciousness, a collection of Ollie's essays. We, his friends, were encouraged to call him Ollie, and that's how he signed his letters. And then there's the memoir written by his partner, Bill Hayes. It's called Insomnia City, New York, Oliver and Me. And so to a talk by another fan, a relatively young one, Samuel Mills, who's doing a PhD in Melbourne. He's speaking at ScienceWorks, part of the Museum of Victoria. Oliver Sacks, for those who aren't already aware of him, was pretty much the David Attenborough of the brain. Apart from both being dignified old English gents, they could always look at nature and find a narrative in it. But instead of expeditions to the corner of the natural world, Sacks explored internally, into the unknowns and over the edge of the mapped brain. He wrote that patients with brain disorders are travellers to unimaginable lands, and he spent his life trying to follow them there, to understand and map those lives. So my own interest and career in neuroscience is entirely due to Oliver Sacks and skiing. When I was 14, I was on some mountain on some school trip, and the only entertainment I had was some book about a man who mistook his wife for a hat, or to go skiing. But I found out pretty quickly that falling down a mountain over and over again wasn't for me. So I started reading this book, and realized that it was the best thing that I'd ever seen. It was full of the most bizarre stories and told in a way that a 14-year-old with a bad attitude could understand. <laughs> Some of my favorites were The Lost Mariner, about a man who couldn't form any new memories. Although he was speaking with Sachs in the 1980s, his mind was set forever in the 1930s and in the Navy. The disembodied lady who lost an ability that we'll probably take for granted, you don't think about it, but she could no longer sense where her limbs were in space unless she was looking at them. If she looked away, they would just start to, to float off. The man who fell out of bed, he didn't recognize his own leg anymore after an injury. And during the night, he'd wake up and be horrified that some leg was in his bed, throw it out, and then of course, fall out after it. And Dr. P, the titular man who mistook his wife for a hat, was completely blind just to faces. He could see them, but he couldn't recognize them. And when he met Dr. Sachs, he heard him coming, stood up from his chair, and extended his arm towards the grandfather clock. And he got his name when he and Sachs were going out for a walk. And he tried to put his hat on, but he mistook his wife and almost pulled her head off. She took it quite well. I think she was used to it. But the thing that comes through from these case studies is that you can tell from the titles is that they are not about the diseases that the people had, but about the people themselves. And Oliver felt deeply for the mistreated and the marginalized, and he used his laser-sharp doctor vision to look past the physical problem to see the rich inner goings-on for these people. And his case studies are really stories of the hero's journey, about the men and the women trying to overcome their neurological fate. And in all his books, as much as the patients, Oliver himself stands out as a central character. His compassion, his empathy, wit, but most of all, I think, his curiosity. So just who was this strange man? Physically, he was a bear of a man. A journalist in the 90s described him as looking like a stray Santa as he wandered across the film set of the movie Awakenings. And he had a huge beard, 
and uh, his eyes twinkled like Dumbledore. For you millennials. But as a young man, during his bodybuilding and motorcycling phase, his colleagues used to call him Dr. Squats. Hashtag distractingly sexy. But even bigger than his massive thighs was his heart. And to illustrate this, I'll tell you a story from his hat book that he called Mrs. O.C. and the Case of Incontinence Nostalgia, which is a good title. Incontinence is when you can't stop peeing or pooping. So, Mrs. O.C. was an 88-year-old woman living in a nursing home in fine health, on all counts, a real pistol. One night, she wakes up to really loud music. And being in a nursing home, she thinks it's probably not neighbors having a party. But she gets up thinking somebody's left the radio on, searches the room, finds all the radios are turned off. She can't get this music out of her head. She thinks maybe it's a feeling. One of my feelings is getting the radio. So she goes to the doctor the next morning, gives her a once-over and finds she's in perfect health and refers her to a neurologist. And so she's worried. She thinks she's losing her mind. And to her luck, they call Dr. Sachs. He comes in. Do they do an interview? It's like a date at a bad bar. They can only talk during the quiet numbers. And he runs some tests and finds that she's had a stroke in the part of her brain that controls music. And so he says it's a case of musical epilepsy, relatively rare. And as the blood clot clears, the music will probably die down. And while most doctors may have left it there, Sachs sees that she's quite upset. So he digs a bit deeper, gets some personal history and inquires about the songs. And she tells him she was born in Ireland. 1890s, orphaned at age five and then sent to America to live with a rather forbidding maiden aunt. Old Mrs. O.C. has no conscious memory of the time and she always feels this as a keen and painful sadness. Those are Sax's words. He has that great British lisp. And the songs Oliver's able to discover are Irish ballads from around the time that Mrs. O.C. was living in Ireland. And he also observes that at that point, radio wasn't commonly accessible in Ireland. So he tells her a story, and it's not strictly neuroscience, but it demonstrates his ability to look at someone and see their heart and turn a key. And so what he says is that, imagine your brain is a house that you live in. Every memory, every experience makes up that house to what it is. You can't exist outside the house, and the house can't exist without you. And you know how nobody remembers anything from those first years of your life. Well, there was a theory for a while, it's probably not true, but they believed it, that somewhere in this house is a secret room where those memories from your first few years are locked and stored, inaccessible to you. And haven't we all dreamt about finding a secret room in our own house? It's a lovely idea. And so when something goes wrong in the brain, such as a stroke, what can happen is a crack will appear in the walls of this house and usually bad things happen. But in your case, Mrs. O.C., he says, let's say this crack has appeared that is exposing this secret room and pouring out of it is not just random music, but music from your past. And let's go a step further and say that what you're hearing is actually the voice of your own mother. Yes, Mrs. O.C. said. She quite liked that. I feel like I'm in Ireland again. <laughs> Sorry, I said I wouldn't do it. I feel my mother's arms. I see her. I hear her voice singing. And what a gift to give. Mrs. O.C., who had been frightened by the tunes, now drew deep comfort from them. Uh, and while so full of warmth and care for his patients and his friends, the great contradiction of Oliver Sacks is that his personal life was lacking and unfulfilled. He kept his own heart in a box for decades. In his last book, his memoirs, Sacks revealed that since the early 70s, at about 40 years old, 
after a series of painful rejections and a lifetime of scorn due to his sexuality. Yes, homosexuality was illegal during his upbringing. He swore off ever falling in love again, and he became celibate. And he did leave a monk-like life, dedicating himself to his work, his patients, and pursuits intellectual. And so it went that for 35 years, Oliver's sack remained empty. <laughs> Until at age 75, Sachs received a bolt from the blue. In 2008, he met a man called Bill Hayes, a writer and photographer. And when Bill told Oliver that, I have conceived a deep love for you, and isn't that a nice way to say it? I'm happy to say that Oliver found that he felt the same. He too had conceived a deep love for Bill. And to illustrate, again, the charming and enduring nature of Oliver's curiosity, this is an excerpt from Bill's recent memoir. July 9, 2009. Notes from a journal, Oliver's 76th birthday. After I kiss him for a long time, it's a bit saucy. <laughs> Exploring his mouth and his lips with my tongue, he has a look of utter surprise on his face. He says, is that what kissing is, or is that something you've invented? <laughs> so even as a 76-year-old man, after his first Frenchie, he delights in the unknown and the sensuous. The Oliver Sacks stories really are a bridge between science and art, the physical and the personal. And what really comes through to the reader is the revelation of how close we all are to slipping off the side of the map. I mean, one blood clot, one lightning strike, one gene out of place, one hurtful comment too many, and we too may be thrown into unimaginable lands, wishing for an open-minded and kind-hearted person like Sachs to reach out to. So, finally, to wrap up, I'd like to list some fast facts about Oliver Sachs. I call this part of the talk, Sachs Facts. <laughs> In the 60s, one evening, while experimenting with a mixture of amphetamines, LSD, and a little cannabis, a passing spider speaks to Oliver and asks him a rather complex question about mathematical theory. <laughs> Sachs patiently explained his thoughts on the subject. Perhaps some of you have also come across this particular genus of spider. <laughs> he was a very active member of the Fern Society, a society dedicated to fern appreciation. <laughs> he held a California record for bodybuilding after he performed a full squat with about 300 kilograms across his shoulders. And that is how you get the title of Dr. Squats. <laughs> and on the subject of his own imminent death, he died of cancer in 2015. After receiving his diagnosis, he wrote in the New York Times, when people die, they cannot be replaced. They leave holes that cannot be filled, for it is the fate, the genetic and neural fate, of every human to be a unique individual, to find their own path, to live their own life, to die their own death. Thank you. Stay curious. PhD student Samuel Mills at ScienceWorks in Melbourne, and Oliver Sacks certainly led his own life. Such a story. Read his older books such as Uncle Tungsten, or the two just out, The River of Consciousness, with some of Ollie's essays, and then the memoir by his partner Bill Hayes, Insomnia City, New York, Oliver and Me. Next week, a topic Ollie would have enjoyed, exploring the human body from the inside using IT a talk by John McGee from the University of New South Wales. I'm Robin Williams.